The early church did not have a clean start. Habits of the surrounding culture lingered and polluted the hearts of new Christ followers. In 1 Corinthians, Paul seeks to answer the question, what does the gospel teach us about living for Christ in a corrupted world? What does it say about unity, division, worship, sexual integrity? How can we use the gospel to cleanse a dirty church? Hi. Yeah, it's good to see you. Um, It's great to have you folks all across our campuses, all across Chicagoland join us. I hope you are okay in the ice storm. This is my second ice storm in my life, and I've decided I don't like them. Um, But that's... That's okay, she says, Chicago. Well, I liked Chicago until yesterday. Uh, look, I actually have a, um, I have a quick announcement to make before we get into studying God's Word. You remember at the end of last year, <laughs> sounds so long ago, the end of last year, 2021, I, uh, every week was coming up and reminding us that uh, the Lord had given us a call to church to fulfill a certain obligation financially, and I was trying to talk a little bit about what the what, uh, you, you know, what the scriptures have to say about money and giving and all that kind of thing. Anyway, uh, the, the year ended. We, we uh, were praying all along that the Lord would provide what we need. So we put a graphic together to let you know uh, what happened in all of that. And I will move out of the way. It's on this back screen. It, it's like one of those rolling, you guys ever seen the, 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 the uh, national debt clock? This is the opposite. Right, so, so, yeah, so we needed 2.15 million, uh, and we, oh, we are going to, oh, we met it, and then we kept going. Right? So, uh, something happened to you guys, and you gave 400,000 extra. So, uh, praise God, right? That's such an evidence of his grace in our lives, right? What you need to know is that that, that money, all of it, is if you just saw a video about the, our deploy program, our, our uh, in-resident seminary training program, but most of it's going to go to initiatives like that and church planting all across Chicagoland and partnerships that we have. Uh, some to debt reduction, but most of it is going to be spent outside the doors of harvest or on uh, people who we had planned to kick out the doors of harvest. So um, <clears throat> we are just so thrilled and so excited uh, about what God's going to do. Uh, I've been praying that the Lord would, would continue to give us a heart for this kind of work in the days ahead, okay? Look, let me pray. I'm going to pray real quick, and then um, we're going to We're going to study God's Word together. I don't have COVID, for those of you who know. I've had tests and everything. I know this is shocking to many of you, but the cold, the common cold, is still a thing. I know. know. It's crazy. So let me me pray, and then we'll study God's Word together. Father, I'm so thankful for your grace, and I'm thankful for your Word, and I'm thankful for the book of 1 Corinthians as we... Endeavor to study it now. God, I just gave a graphic. We just gave a graphic of your faithfulness, Lord. That is glory to you. That is glory to your name and uh, evidence, once again, that you own the cattle on a thousand hills. And uh, Father, you have a heart 
for churches that multiply and that look beyond the boundaries of what they are to the horizons of our world and seek to make a difference there. God, make us that church, we pray. And help us now as we study your word to open our hearts and minds to it. Give me the words to speak. Father, if there's anything I'm about to say that's not of you, would you stop it before it's said? And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would carry these words and implant it on the hearts of those who hear it. For your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've had a lot of odd experiences in, in, in churches over my life. I came to faith uh, kind of in early high school and uh, wasn't really accustomed to the evangelically church life. I know that's a word that's loaded evangelical now, but you know, like that was the kind of Bible-believing church uh, culture that I engaged in for the first time. And I thought when I first came to those churches that, wow, I'm going to be surrounded by a whole bunch of Christian people now who got it all together, right? You're going to be getting to the room and everyone's going to be kind to you and the church is always going to function really properly and kindly and people are going to think the best of each other. Well, as you get involved in church longer and longer, you realize that uh, that is a pipe dream, that we still live in a fallen world and that Christians uh, prove the doctrine of grace by their actions. So uh, we need grace an awful lot. And so I've been around some really interesting situations. Uh, I wanted, I'll share one with you. I was at this little church, our, my former church was uh, being asked to adopt this church and turn it into one of our campuses. So uh, went out to visit with the elder board there sat around a table for about an hour and a half and talked about their church. It was a complete and utter mess. All the things, infighting between the former pastor and the current pastor and the pastor's wife and like they're all, everybody fighting with each other. You know, even, even, even the, the, the potlucks were, had become, we can't do it anymore, right? Because someone gets angry about the fact that she brought spaghetti and they brought another spaghetti and big deal. I know it sounds, sounds silly. Anyway, after this meeting, uh, the interim pastor had been there for a year, and he was leaving the next month. He decided that he would give me a tour, walk me around uh, the the building. So I I joined him. He walked up the stairs, looked at the different classrooms and things. It was a cute little church building, kind of. He's telling me all the different ministries that happened there, kind of in the 1960s all the way up through, and fascinating history of the church, all sorts of stuff. Some really cool things that the church had done over time. Anyway, we got to the sanctuary, the worship center. And he walked in, and one of the first things you notice about the worship center is at the back of the worship center, there are rows of pews. Remember pews, those of you guys who are Christians? Those of you who are not are like, what, what, pew? There are these big, long benches, right, that used to sit on because apparently God likes those better than chairs. So anyway, so big, long benches that they had for years and years. You sit on those, sit on the pews. The back was filled with pews, but in the front, you know, there's like three or four rows of chairs, like the ones that we're all sitting on all over our campuses. Well, I said, well, I don't, this is a little weird. How did that come to be? And he goes, oh, yeah? Okay, here's how it came to be. He said, um, a few years ago, we, they were deciding about what they were going to do with their, their, you know, their decrepit pews. And... Um, Half of the church wanted to in, put new chairs in because they were like, they're more comfortable and we're getting old and I have a sciatic nerve. And, and the other half were like, no, uh, in heaven, we will be sitting on pews. So 
we're going to have the pews. So there's the pew people and the chair people sort of divide up and they're throwing things at each other, getting really angry about all sorts of stuff. And so the pastor of that time actually stepped in and he did what many small church pastors uh, do. He split the difference and he said, all right, we're going to put half chairs and half pews. Got it? Everyone's like, yes, good. So the first Sunday they show up, everybody, the chair people are sitting in chairs and pew people are sitting in their pews. The next week, a couple of pew people looked at the chairs and thought, those look nice. So they went forward and sat in the chairs, which made the chair people a little angry, right? Because they had been in this fight with the pew people for the last little while. And they are not going to let those pew people change their minds. You know, you made these pews, you're going to sleep in them, right? This is your... So big fight breaks out. The chair people say, no pew people can sit in our, pew, our chairs. They had their chance and they blew it. So the pew people were like, well, our, our bums do still hurt a little bit. So they went out and they, and they decided that they would get custom made pads for the pew. And they set it down in the location in the church where that's their spot. You know what I mean? Like, come on, I'm the third row on the aisle. That's my spot. And had their name on it or whatever, you know, like calligraphy on this, on, on this pad. And so everywhere you looked on the pews, there were these little pads. And the, this pastor who was leaving the next month and had dealt with this infighting church for the last while, he said, watch this. And he walked around and he picked up each one of the pads and he moved them to other locations in the, in the church. He put these ones over here and this one over here and everything. And I was like, yeah, are you going to get in trouble? Oh, yeah. He said, oh, yeah, but they deserve it. He said, let me tell you what. Last week... I played the same sermon, audio of the same sermon I preached the week before. And before I played the audio, I told them, none of you did what I asked you the week before, so I'm playing it again. And he said, this week I might play it again. And I was like, well, you've given up, right? <laughs> like, wow, wow. I remember driving back to my house thinking, what in the world? How can Christians act like that toward each other? We're a mess. Churches are a mess. And those are little things, right? You also get the big ones. One of the churches I used to serve uh, when I left, there was in one of the elders, he got in with some group that decided that they would change the definition of the Trinity. Like that's a big thing, right? That's a big thing. And so the church was, I was getting phone calls and they're like, what do we do about this particular guy? I mean, he was my friend. I was talking to him on the phone and saying, what are you doing? No, 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 I'm buying into this group with such and like, you know, this little mini cult thing and they all believe this thing and I'm going to bring that news to the church. And I said, oh, come on, man. You're... So they had to oppose him publicly. He, he is a heretic. And by definition, he was a heretic. To say that in front of their whole church. <laughs> what a mess. If only we could, I don't know, like get back to the beginning, you know, it's, been, it's become such a mess. It's only if you go back to the early days of, of the church when things were way better. I had a friend actually who planted a church. When I asked him, why are you planting your church? He said that. Because we need to get back to the basics, to the early days. When all this nonsense and mess wasn't around. Um, it, by the way, his church folded like two years ago. Which is, I mean, awful, but predictable. Because we're a mess. Churches are a mess. The longer you tend to spend time in them, you realize that Christians are sinners who 
need a savior. And there was never a time when it wasn't like that. You want real proof? First Corinthians. The book of First Corinthians. This church is a mess. The church in Corinth. And we are going to spend the next number of weeks studying this book. It's awesome. Uh, I love the book of First Corinthians. It's very timely. A lot of the things that are said in it have a lot to do with things that even are happening today because no matter how many years go by, the challenges that face Christian people remain the same. The names change, guys, but the challenges are the same. How do we live faithful Christian lives in the midst of a culture that's calling us not to? What does it mean to be in the world but not of the world? How should we view our sexuality? How should we view lawsuits with each other? How should we view divisions that occur in the church? How do we live as faithful Christians in a culture that doesn't doesn't want us to? And so we're going to start studying this book, like I said, a number of weeks in the future. It's going to be it's going to be awesome. I'm super excited about, about it. Um, today, we're going to look at verses 1 to 9 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And here, uh, the question that I want to answer is this one. If you were in a position to counsel messy Christians who don't really look like Christ, what would you say to them? If you, if you were asked to write an email to a messy church that has half pews and half chairs, where, where the elder has decided that, you know, Jesus is not fully God. Like if you had to write something to a messy church, given all of your background and all of your knowledge, if you were going to write something to them, what would you say about them at the very get-go? So you got to be tempted. I'm, I'd be, well, I'd be tempted to, you know, bring out the big gun, honestly, go straight to the nuclear weapon. Just throw it. But Paul doesn't do that. He actually lists off some character traits of this church, which are kind of surprising, given how much of a pain they were. So look, I've got four of these character traits, four of the things that Paul says to this church about who they are and what they're like, despite the fact that they're a complete mess. Number one, they're set apart. They're set apart. Paul, this is the first words in uh, 1 Corinthians. Paul, he's called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's got a story about that, right? Those of you who know your scriptures, you know in the book of Acts, uh, the apostle Paul was riding down the road one day on the back of his horse, and uh, he was planning on... uh, imprisoning a bunch of other Christians and helping that they die in prison or killed. That was his mission in life. It's like he's keeping, the, he's keeping the religion pure by eliminating some of these new folks who've tried to change it. So he's riding along, confident, buddies around him, and all of a sudden out of the sky, boom, Jesus shows up and knocks him off his horse. This is what happens when Jesus shows up. You're, on, you're on the ho- off the horse. And he's laying there on the ground and Jesus out of the heavens says, why are you persecuting me? So 
Saul doesn't know what to make of this. Paul doesn't know what to make of this. And so they pick him up and they take him to the nearby town. He, he's blind. He can't see anything. Meanwhile, there's this guy named Ananias, a different dude than the one who died for lying, okay? There's this guy named Ananias. He's a prophet. And he's just minding his own business. And the Lord comes to him, right? And says, okay, so here's what I need you to do. I need you to go over to Paul and I need you to tell him that he's going to be my missionary to the Gentiles. He's going to reach out with the gospel to all the nations, all the peoples who aren't Jewish. Ananias is like, um, um, are we talking about the same Paul who's trying to kill a bunch of Christians and especially doesn't like prophets like me? Yeah, that's the one. Do you know him? <laughs> Lord, I don't think I want to go and visit. They just go, Okay. So he shows up at Paul, he's thankful that he's probably blind, and he starts delivering the message to God. Scales fall from Paul's eyes, and away we go, and here you sit. He has a story about being called by the will of God. Guys, it, he did not seek the Lord. Jesus knocked him off the horse. This is important for the Corinthians because they really had a big issue with Paul because they were like, yeah, you're not really an apostle, are you? I mean, you're not like a Peter apostle, <laughs> you know what I mean? You're like apostle light. And he was like, no, no, I'm an, I'm an apostle and my apostleship doesn't come from me. I didn't show up to your church and try to help you because I had a good idea one day. I showed up because God knocked me off the horse. So I'm called to be an apostle. So what I'm going to say, basically, has authority, has God's authority, his stamp of approval on it, because he called me to say it. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Ladies, if you're looking for a name for that child, there's one. Sosthenes. <laughs> to the church of God that is in Corinth. Okay, what an interesting church and place. Corinth was kind of the center of the world. I mean, Rome was the center of the world, but Corinth was a big deal. It was a real trade uh, port and also a place where roads crossed. Uh, there's, here's a map of the area. Th this little part here is called an isthmus, okay? It's a connector, a land connector between two larger pieces of land. Corinth was right on the Isthmus. So if you were traveling, say from Athens, very important city, and you wanted to come down, you know, down here, you had to go across the land there. If you were shipping something, as they did, and you didn't want to go all the way around here, you would take your boat and cross right there. When they crossed, they would pick your boat up. Seriously, they'd pick the boat up out of the water. They didn't have a Suez Canal or anything. So they picked the boat up out of the water and they would carry it across the land. There were people whose job that was. So in Corinth, X marks the spot. What spot? Well, the spot where sailors like to hang out doing sailor stuff after being at sea for 50 days. Uh, the, the spot where truckers like to hang out and do trucker stuff after driving their 
their truck all this time. They had beds. They had all sorts of stuff. You say, what kind of stuff would they do? Okay. Uh, there were dozens of temples in the city, and almost all the temples said one of the ways you could worship those gods was through temple prostitution. And so there were thousands of temple prostitutes in the city. And the sailors loved it. And the truckers loved it. There's a lot of money flowing. It's like Las Vegas crossed with Los Angeles crossed with New York. That's Corinth. City was, um, if, you, if you were going to go out and you were going to start smooching with your girl in the back here, they would say, you guys are going out to do some Corinthianizing, eh? If you were a loose woman in those days, they'd call you a Corinthian girl. <laughs> Corinthian girl. Like the city's name was tied to sexual immorality. That's, that's the city of Corinth. And Paul planted a church right there, right? The, the letter is to the church of God that's in Corinth. The church isn't, this church is an interesting group of folks. Paul planted it. You can read about it in the book of Acts. He stayed there for 18 months. So he got to know these folks really, really well. And when he left, they started this correspondence. You know how sometimes you write an email to somebody and you're like, okay, so that email is set, sets things straight. And then they respond by being like, I don't actually like what you had to say. And then you respond again. And then they send it back and you respond. This is a correspondence. Correspondence. Like a, like a harsh correspondence, a needling correspondence. It's like Facebook. Right? They posted that. I'm going to post this. This is what Paul had. And so here's a little interesting background, okay? There were four different letters that Paul wrote to them. The first one, we don't know a whole lot about. Paul, Paul says, um, I wrote to you to avoid sexual immoral, uh, to, to avoid those who are sexually immoral, not meaning the immoral of this world. He says that in 1 Corinthians. So he's talking about some former letter. But they didn't really listen to him a whole lot. He got some reports that they were doing some pretty crazy things. And so he wrote 1 Corinthians. Where he tries to correct a lot of what they're thinking. They respond by saying, we don't like you at all. And you're not an apostle. Then he wrote what's called the harsh letter. I would love to see the harsh letter. Give it to him, Paul. We don't have this. Probably by God's providence, we don't have this, right? You know, that's the letters like, okay, you know, taking the belt off. We don't have this. And then they apparently responded to the harsh letter. And Paul's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I was really harsh with all you guys. I really actually love you very, very much. 2 Corinthians. So here's this weird thing. 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians. So you can write that down and win all of the trivial pursuit games you can now, right? That's, that's the way that that works. Well, here's the point that I want you to see is that he had this ongoing debate. They are tiring him out. What would you call people like that? Like if you had a chance to talk about their character, if I asked you, oh, what's that church like? What would you say about the first thing you said about them? You know what Paul said? First thing, he pointed out, 
They're the ones who are sanctified. The word means holy. They're, they're holy. What's the church like? Set apart. This word means set apart. Uh, they used to sanctify or set apart things in the temple, right? So these particular utensils won't be used in any other place but doing this thing so that they'll remain clean. In Canada, one of the things you might not know is that you have to take your shoes off in everyone's house. Americans always go up and they're wearing their shoes all over and the Canadians are like, oh, I don't like this. You have to take your shoes off. And if you go to school, you have to buy an extra pair of shoes for your classroom, right? You, there's outside shoes and then you take them off and then inside shoes, so every Canadian classroom smells like smelly little kids' feet. But they have inside shoes. Those shoes are set apart. They're sanctified, that's what the word means. They're sanctified, they're only for use for clean things. You, Corinthians, he says, are set apart. You are, by God, he has taken you and he has set you apart and he has called you to a particular kind of life. You are sanctified in Christ. Also, you're called to be sanctified. These are the same basic word. So what do I say about you? Well, you're sanctified and you, you should be sanctified. You, you, you should be who you are. So look, to messy Christians in a messy church, Paul starts with the solution to their problem. And everyone who is listening to me right now who says, yeah, my life is messy with sin. Listen to me. Now, I don't know how it is that I don't follow Jesus better. Listen to me very closely. The solution to the problem of messy Christianity is to know who you are. So, who are you? You know, um, maybe an image helps along these lines. <clears throat> Imagine that I came along and I gave you a house because I have lo I'm a lot of them. So I, I'm going to give you one of my many homes. And my homes are really lovely. They, they're on cliffs and they overlook oceans and they're mansions and they're beautiful, right? They're much better than your shack. So you, you live in squalor or whatever it is and you live there and I give you this massive mansion and you're like, oh, it's so great. I hand you the deed, right? It says your name on the top. I own it, you say. Yeah, I give you the keys and all the instructions on the heaters and how the water purifiers work and all that. You're like, I'm gonna read through this later. I give it all to you. The truth about you is that you own a mansion. So the first night that you own the mansion, you go back and you sleep in the shack. And I come to you and I say, um, I don't think you understand. Well, what don't I understand? I don't think you understand who you are. You should be who you are. You should live in the thing that you, that you have. So what's true about you? You're a mansion owner. You should act like somebody who owns a mansion. My kids get, um, you know, friends giving them grief at school or whatever in years gone by. You know, maybe, maybe in sports, they have some teammates who are being rough on them. They say, Dad, I don't really, it's just really hard. And I, they say this about me and say this about me and say this about me. And I say, whoa, 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 whoa. You know who you are though, right? You know who, who you are. Yes. Who are you? Son of a living God, adopted into his family, heir with Christ, co-heir with Christ, eternity in 
in heavenly bliss, the apple of God's eye. God sings over me. Yeah, that's who you are. So your little snot-nosed friend, who cares? What he has to say to you. If you struggle, seriously, if you struggle with particular sin, you know, I, I don't know what it is. When you're active, acting in that sin, the problem is that you don't realize that you're not that person. Not anymore. You used to be, but now you're a new creation. You, you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Live like people of the light. You're sanctified. Well, I don't feel sanctified, but you are. You're set apart by God. So live like it. I struggle a lot, quite honestly, with um, mental health. I have for a number of years. I didn't know it. I, I had no idea. I thought that basically the normal part of life was just feeling horrible about yourself and constantly accusing yourself of not being good enough. And then I ended up <clears throat> talking to a psychiatrist because my wife beat me down enough with her nagging that she made me go. <clears throat> I'm, that's a joke. I thank God for her very much for doing that. And I ended up getting on some medication, which I thank God for. What a wonderful grace that is. But one of the things I had to do is I go sit, I visit a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist is a Christian guy. And he would say, well, talk to me about some of your stuff. I said, you know what? I just don't think I should be alive, really. I'm not really worth anything. I, I don't, when I think about where I am in my life, I'm gonna be exposed as being a fake. I'm gonna be, like everyone's gonna find out at some point that I just am not good enough. And so I tell myself that all the time. I never feel like the sermon's good enough. I never feel like I'm a good enough father. I never, 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 never. I just hate it. In fact, I wish sometimes that I wasn't even ever born. psychiatrist writing this stuff down. He's a Christian brother. And so at one point he put his pad down and he said, can I just talk to you as a believer? Yes. He said, man, if you talk the way, if you talk to other people, the way you talk about yourself, uh, I, I put you in prison. Like what an abuser you are. Do you have any idea? The reason you don't talk to other people that way is because you know they're not those people. You know they're not like that. You know who they are. You just don't know who you are. Who are you? <sighs> Child of the living God, adopted into Christ, eternal bliss, called before the foundations of the world, marked out by God. Right. You're set apart. This trashy church. Now you guys are set apart. It's the first thing he says. That was the first point. You're in trouble. Here's the second one. Here's the second one. We're together. So we're set apart, but we're also together. Here's what I mean. So going back to the very beginning, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, second chance, ladies, here it is, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, right? Sanctified, called to be sanctified together with, now listen, they're together with all those who in Every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Well, it seems like he's trying to make a point. 
So the Corinthian church was really interesting in that they had this really amazing worship service, very different than a lot of the other churches at that time. At least that's the evidence we have. People were speaking in tongues. People were getting revelations from God and speaking them out. In fact, the Corinthians believed that they had reached some level that's so close to heaven that you couldn't even tell the difference between heaven and what they were experiencing. Like other churches, yeah, they don't have that yet. But we, the Corinthians, we are like endowed with speech gifts and knowledge gifts and amazing giftedness. When somebody shows up to our church, the first thing they notice is that God is among you because it's so evident by what they see, people shaking and falling down. We're amazing. I mean, not like Ephesus. Have you seen Ephesus? They're a mess. That church in Colossae? (laughs) No. The one in Jerusalem? Oh, absolutely not. We're Corinth, and everything is great with us. So they look down on everybody else. And so Paul at the very get-go is like, actually, um, you're one of everyone else. Yeah, you're together with all those in every place who, who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, their Lord and ours. Let me show you a, a, a quick theological um, <clears throat> diagram. Um, If we're talking about churches, okay, there are categories of churches. We have to agree there is such a thing as a false church. And I, they might call themselves a church or whatever, but what makes them a false church is that they deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay. They're basically like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have church in our name, but if you ask us questions about what, you know, whether Jesus died for our sins and he was actually God and all that kind of thing. No, we don't buy it. We don't buy it. Right. Well, you might have church in your name, but you're not fitting the biblical definition of what a church is. So there are such things as false and true churches in the world. Everyone will agree with this. Everyone, even the false churches agree that they just think that you are the ones who are false. But within the true church, okay, so this is a big dividing line, makes you either a Christian church or not, but there, there is an also like a spectrum of purity, right? And by purity, I mean, okay, well, um, maybe you're a true church that flags the go- flies the gospel flag, but you also, I don't know, you disagree or, or ignore this particular part of the Bible or think that the Bible's not authoritative. Or you might say, well, I believe that only men should be elders. And I believe that, well, no, only women and men should be elders. And I, well, I believe you should baptize babies. Well, I think you shouldn't baptize babies, right? So each one of us, we, we have, uh, each church has a kind of a purity spectrum. And every single church everywhere thinks that they're over here, right? All of them. I mean, Harvest is over here. (laughs) Every church thinks this, and they think that everybody else is kind of less pure than they are. Okay, we can debate about all that, and there's probably, there probably are more pure, meaning that more churches that follow God's word more truly than others, and that should, it matters, it does matter. But here's what ends up happening is if you view yourself here all the time, you look back upon all these people and you sneer and you say, I'm glad we're not like them. Losers don't understand biblical ecclesiology like we do, which matters. Ecclesiology matters. They don't 
practice the spiritual gifts like we do. So you end up looking down on every, everyone else. And then Paul, he's addressing this very issue. He's saying, look, that's a Corinthian attitude. And at the very get-go, you need to understand that you are part of a larger community of people who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They fly the gospel flag. God's, work, God's at work among others, in other words. All right. First of two jokes to this today, okay? Here's my number one joke. Um, so there's this guy, he goes into heaven, <clears throat> and uh, Peter's showing him around, goes over to this section. He's like, oh, this is a Presbyterian section. They like to hang out with each other. Don't like to show a lot of emotion. It's fine, they're over here. There's charismatics. <laughs> Be careful when you go in there, right? You might come out tattooed or something. So you... Over here, there's, you know, the Baptists and stuff like that. Uh, there's over here, there's, he just goes on all the lines. And they all have a common square and every mingles and stuff like that. And then the guy notices that there's a big fence over in this corner. And he said, well, what's behind the fence? He said, oh, if you go over there, be really quiet. Why? Well, behind the fence are the Mennonites. And uh, they think they're, they're alone. They think they're the only ones here. Okay, it's a better joke than you gave me the answer for. <laughs> That's the way a lot of people think, though, right? I mean, we're going to get to heaven one day, and we're going to, you know, we act like that here. We act, we act like that here, that, you know, if you disagree with me on some point of doctrine that is not fundamental, by the way, it's not a gospel piece of doctrine, but if you disagree with me on a piece of doctrine, then, well, I don't know, you might make it to heaven, but you're going to be living in, uh, you know, the Iraq of heaven, <laughs> There's a reason, in other words, that we pray every week for churches. You know why? Here's why. Because most churches, most people think that the church is a, we're a ship. And we've been well, you know, endowed with armor and guns and everything. We're going to go win the battle, right? The world's on fire. We've got to fight back the enemy. Forces of darkness. And so we go out there in our, in our ship, our harvest ship, and we go out there and we shoot down as many things. But we realize very quickly that there are lots and lots of other, there, there are lots and lots of enemy that surpass the number of people and ability that we have as one ship. We're not a single ship all alone out in the sea. Actually, we're part of an armada. Some of the ships are really big. Some of them not as big. But we're all part of this massive armada and together we all fly this gospel flag and we all move together. Sometimes there are other ships in the armada that aren't as healthy as ours is. So we send some people from our ship over to that ship so that they can become healthier and then they can actually join the fight a little bit with more efficiency, yeah? They're not less than us, they are us. We are together. We're set apart. We're together. Third, we're gifted. Um, here's verse four. So he gives this kind of preamble. He says, grace and peace to them. I skipped over that part, right? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And here's his prayer for them. I give thanks to my God always for you. 
<laughs> this messy church. I'm gonna, I thank God every day for you. Why? Well, because of the grace of God and, and th- that was given to you in Christ Jesus. Specifically, what are you talking about, Paul? You sal- salvation grace? Like what kind of grace? Well, uh, namely, or that in every way, you are enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. Remember what I just said a minute ago? Their worship services are a complete mess and Paul has to come along and he has to correct the abuses. But before he corrects the abuses, he says, oh, um, I need to tell you that you guys are amazing. Those things that you're abusing, it's really cool that you have them, right? Like, it's amazing that you guys have all of those things. I don't want to denigrate those things in any way. I just want to stop you from abusing them. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not, look, you're not lacking in any gift. This messy church, one of the first things the guy says to them, about them, is that they're gifted. That's not what I would say to messy Christians in my life. Usually I point out all their errors because that's God's way, right? Like, look at all the things that you're doing wrong. And yet Paul's like, yeah, we'll get to that. But before we start anything, can I just point out all the evidences of God's grace in your life? So that, so that you can see what God's actually doing among you? All right, second joke. Um, so there's this father and he's got one child who's a super optimist and he's got one child who's a raging pessimist and he's like they can't live like this i gotta correct some of this right so he says to the optimist son listen we're we're gonna i'm gonna give you some christmas presents this year also with the pessimist son and there might be a little different than what you expect so christmas morning comes pessimist son comes down the stairs and there's like presents everywhere and all of them are for him all of them. There's no way he can look at the downside of this, right? He walks in the middle of him and he drops his shoulders and he starts to whimper. <laughs> and his dad's like, what is wrong? These are all for you. He goes, they're probably all gonna break. <laughs> Maybe I'll have better luck with the optimist. He takes the optimist into the other room and for him, he's put in the middle of a room an enormous pile of horse manure. Merry Christmas, son. Right? Deal with the real world. He's a good father, this guy. Anyway, big, big pile of horse manure. The optimist son walks into the room. He looks at the big pile of horse manure. Instead of really being down, he's like, woo! And he jumps in the middle of the horse manure. He starts digging down. His dad's like, what are you doing? He says, look, if there's all this manure in here, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> that was a better one? Okay. I know it's a stupid joke, but it's kind of what Paul's saying. You know that, right? Like, it's kind of what he's saying. He's like, guys, you do realize that I know it's a big mess. It's a, your church is filled with horse manure. I can see it. I'm going to point out a lot of the places where it's filled with horse manure. But I got to tell you, it's got a pony. It's got a pony. Now, listen, I'm not, I'm not coming to you and saying, oh, you should just chin up, guys. Like everything in the culture says, chin up, it'll get better. Do you realize that the culture has no right, the society outside the walls of a Christian church to people who are not believers in the Lord Jesus, they have no right to tell them that because it will not get better. Ah, maybe for a short period of time, time will heal the wound, but at the end, it's not getting better. 
But I can say that to you as a Christian. I can come to you and say, you know, no matter what it is you're facing right now, no matter how high the horse manure in your life, there is grace there. There's grace there. You know how I know? Because God determined that he would call you out, sanctify you, pin his heart to you and determine that he's gonna complete what he started. So even though it's horrible, I know it's horrible, it looks terrible, you can dive right in and say there's a pony. I know there's a pony. You ever, have you ever thought about doing that in your life? You ever just stopped in the middle of all of your horror and terrible moments and just stopped and said, right, so but let me look for the graces. My church, where I used to be, Every week, we as a staff would repeat to each other, what are the evidences of God's grace that we've seen in the last week of our church? Because churches are messy and they're a pain in the rear and we deal with all sorts of sinful people and we ourselves are sinful. Where are the graces though? And people will report, I saw an evidence of God's grace here. And they say something like, you know, we had $400,000 more than we were supposed to get. That's a grace. Hey, we baptized 90-some people on one weekend. We're going to develop a whole bunch of leaders who've all volunteered to become part of a seminary program in the midst of a local church. Grace, grace, grace. Yeah, but what about all the other stuff? Yeah, these stuff's there, but these are great ponies, aren't they? They're great ponies. You ever done this with your kids? I know they're a mess. I know you're like, oh, if they would only do this and this and this and this. Have you sat down and said, I know this, this, and this, but here's where I see God's grace at work in you. Gentlemen, you've never done this with your wife? Or is it always about what they're not doing? You can get to what they're not doing, but Paul doesn't start with that. He starts with a the grace. They're gifted. All right, finally, last one, okay? We are kept. We are kept. So here's the last verses, okay? Uh, so that you're not lacking in any gift. Remember, he's, they're not, they don't have any lack of any gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, the revealing of our Lord Jesus, that's the second coming of Jesus. That's what they're doing. He's basically saying, you as a church, you're meeting together until Jesus comes back. And in the meantime, he, he will sustain you to the end. What end? Well, that end. In fact, he'll sustain you a guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. I can say that, says Paul, because God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, just take a second look with it. I mean, do you guys notice the passives here? Uh, you're not like, as you wait for the revealing, he will sustain you. God is doing the action of sustaining, right? So we are the recipients of it. We are guiltless in the name of the God is faithful by whom we were called. God does the sustaining. God does the calling. In fact, if you go back to the early part of this letter, this is the beginning again. Uh, Paul, he was called by the will of God. He didn't like initiate any of it. They're the ones who are sanctified. That's a passive. Something's happened to them. They all call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he gives thanks to him always because of the grace that was given you. It's a passive. That in every way you were enriched, were enriched. There's a passive. It's kind of like he's making a point. 
What's the point? Everything you have in your entire life is there because God made it so. The fact that you are a Christian right now is there, you are there because God made it. So listen, I know that the way we like to picture it is, okay, so, so people apart from Christ are just sort of in the ocean and they're having a difficult time swimming. And so we come along in our boat and we throw our rope out to them and then they grab the rope and we together, pull together to get in the boat, right? See, that's how people get saved. No, it's not. Because you're not just barely floating in the ocean, you're you're on the bottom of the ocean, right? You swam there on purpose and you're drowned. So the only way you're getting out, you dead lifeless thing on the bottom of the ocean, the only way you're getting out is if God himself drives into the ocean, comes down, grabs you, drags your sorry, 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 back up to the top, gets you on the boat, pumps your chest, good air in, bad air out, good way, the water goes everywhere and you'll go choke alive. Saved. But that's how it, listen, that's how it happened. But here's what you need to know. If that's the way it happens, which is what Paul's basically saying with all the passives. If God is the actor and you are the object, he can say God's going to keep you because God will keep what he began. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And because it belongs to the Lord, There will never be a moment where God's like, well, I I can't do it now. He started it, he's continuing it, and he'll finish it. Even if your life is a horrible mess like the Corinthians. I can say to you, do you fly the gospel flag? Yes. He'll keep you. I had a junior high teacher um, he was a math teacher. He had a Toyota car, and on the back of the Toyota, he had written in this massive, this car is a lemon, <laughs> right? Don't ever buy this car from so-and-so dealer. <laughs> well, he had had this fight with a dealer, and the dealer wouldn't do anything for him, and so he's like, fine, I'm just going to advertise for you. And so he wrote, this car is a lemon. I actually think that some of us feel that way about ourselves, like, God, yeah, okay, God chose me, God is continuing, but there's somewhere along the path, he realized we're kind of a lemon. And that if he had a chance to do it over again, he'd be like, yeah, I don't, uh, I should have bought a Maserati. (laughs) But here's the thing, because God knew you eternally, because God foreknew you, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified, Romans 8, 29. Like, he... Because he's done all of these things, he knew you before you knew you. He knew every nook and cranny of your life. You've never been a moment in your life where your failure, your messiness has surprised him. So he's like, oh, I've never seen that before. I didn't know they'd do that. Never, never been a moment. He basically marked you out and he said, this one is mine. Always mine. Now let me finish with this, my friend. He's a, he has several uh, biological daughters and he has one adopted daughter. She looks different than the rest of them. And she sometimes, she um, starts to feel like she's different than the rest of them. She's had some really hard things in her past, in her childhood that the others didn't have. 
And so she acts out at times and does things that the others are, it looks shocking, messy. Talk about messy. And she'll run off to her room and she'll sit on her, on her bed and she'll cry. And she'll cry because she says repeatedly to my friend, I'm afraid you're going to take me back. I'm afraid that you're, you're going to change your mind. And when she does this, he gets down on his hands or his knees and he kneels by her and he looks her right in the eyes and he says to her, her name, I chose you. Do you understand? I chose you. You will always be mine. And so it is. No matter what the mess is, he chose you, and you will always be his. Isn't First Corinthians fun? It's going to be so good. Let me pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your grace. I'm lo- what a lovely passage of scripture. And Lord, ultimately, what a lovely book. I'm thankful, Father, that you had Paul write to a bunch of mess-ups like us. It feels cathartic almost to read about it and say, oh, so we're not alone. And, we <laughs> and yet, Lord, I, I just, um, I ask that through the study of this book that you would help us to see ourselves and ultimately see some of the solutions the gospel gives us to our low-level Christian living, to our half-heartedness, and to the ways that we have absorbed our culture into our lives unknowingly and unthinkingly. So help us see it. Help us know it. And above all, Father, would you help us to know that we are set apart and we are gifted and we are yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.